Welcome back, everybody, from me, Tim Cable, to the Talking Sports Media Podcast for an extra edition of the program this month. And today it is all about a prodigiously talented young footballer from the 1980s who ascended through every age group and youth team to join Tottenham Hotspur's famed academy at the back end of the 1980s, firstly as a youth player and then as a full professional alongside the likes of Paul Gascoigne and Gary Lineker and a squad which at that time for Tottenham was oozing with talent. Now it all looked set for a highly successful career until injury struck and his professional career ended almost as soon as it started. His name, Anthony Potts, and he joins me for this edition as we talk about his career and his new book, Losing My Spurs, Gaza, the Grief and the Glory. And yes, there are plenty of Gaza tales. Now, don't forget, you can catch up with all previous 33 episodes of this show via the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of the main streaming providers, including iTunes, Amazon, Audible, uh, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, etc. So then let's get down to it. Now, Anthony joined me from his current base, which is in China last week. And we began with a few early cup final memories and the huge revelation that he was, in fact, an Arsenal fan. Uh, you, you started the book, and uh, I remember a piece in that said, there's a million of you out there. You were the one who chased a dream, but you never made it. So I suppose the, the question is, was it better to have tried and lost than never to have tried at all? Um, I would say definitely, yes. Yeah, I think um, it's always better to chase your dreams than kind of be a bat- bystander, you know, take part rather than stand and watch, I think, definitely. It, it seems almost quaint now when you start reading the book and you begin by talking about your earliest memories of football uh, being cup final day in an era which it was then where this was just about the only live club football we saw um unlike so many kids yeah you're in there and it's like nine hours straight of television (laughs) yeah no exactly it was is that, until you'd seen it there, I'd forgot really that you didn't really see live football at the time on TV. So yeah, that, was, that must have been a huge part of the attraction for me. But it, it was the whole thing. It was, I just remember as a child captivated, not moving from the screen until if I was on ITV, if there was an advert, I'd you know, run to the bathroom. But other than that, just absolutely glued to the screen for such a long time. A match of the day, the only programme you're allowed to stay up late for, <laughs> like every other kid. Yeah, no, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then sometimes, um, if something overran, if the news overran, then I'd just be, I'd be scared that I'd get the call that no, you're not going to be able to stay up and watch it tonight because the news has overrun. So if there was a big story, <laughs> I was always a bit panicky that I might end up not being able to watch match of the day. It, did your parents ever do what mine did, which was make you have a sleep in the afternoon, <laughs> so as it was, <laughs> in order for you to stay up? Uh, yeah, I think that, yeah, yeah I've had a, a couple of those. Like, yeah, why don't you just go and have a lay down now and then you can stay up a little bit later and watch it. Yeah, definitely. I think that was probably more to get me out of their way than um, catch me up on my sleep, though. i tell you what, though, 
regardless of whether or not you were allowed to stay up and watch that, there was zero chance of ever being allowed to stay up and watch Sports Night with Coleman or Midweek Match Night on ITV. Not not until you were in your, you know, your mid-teens. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I can remember as well when there was the internationals would be on and like my dad would have a, kind of, a couple of friends over to watch the football and it was at a time when you only had the one TV and I wasn't allowed in there. <laughs> so I'd be sort of outside the door and trying to listen and trying to catch a glimpse of, say, Glenn Hoddle through the gap in the door to try and catch a little bit of it. Was that due to the fact that there was language on show and beer being drunk? Yeah, I think it was a mixture of the, yeah, the language and the beer from them and me probably being well, such a big football fan, asking too many questions and, you know, just rather than them being able to watch it, me just saying, oh, why are they doing that? And who's that there? And what's that? You know, those sort of questions all the time. It, it was still an era as well when kids used to go outside and play uh, football as well. I mean, there were no video games uh, back then. So literally every waking moment that you've got, you're, you're out with your mates kicking a ball somewhere. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I just remember it being, it used to be the... Um, like the street light rule. So you, you were, I was allowed out in the street until the street lights came on and then I'd have to go in. And then you knew when you were a little bit older and you was a bit more trusted that you could stay out when the street lights came on and play by the street lights. But it used to be down my street, it would be there'd be sort of six or seven of us, the lights would go on and we'd be like, oh, here we go, that's it, the game's over. And if it was, <laughs> if it was the person who owned the ball, then the game was over as well. Uh, you were an Arsenal fan, weren't you? Yes. As a, a kid. Uh, and... They were one of the first clubs you had a chance to, to join in their, their youth team? No. I, it, or the, the, the juniors? Yeah, I, I kind of did. It wasn't like my whole team. I had, our Sunday team was very successful. And mm. Arsenal asked the whole team to go along and be their, their youth team. And our manager, quite rightly looking back, said that he'd rather the players did it on their own merit rather than we just all went as a clump, that they, they saw us as individuals. Um, so I never went. And it was always... Like a, a big thing for me that I never actually had an opportunity even to go and train with Arsenal. When when I even had clubs who were after me at the time, I was always wanting the you know the phone call from Arsenal. I was always quite jealous. I had a couple of friends who were training with Arsenal, and even even now when I look back, it was kind of I was quite green with envy when I'd I'd see pictures of them in their Arsenal kit, and yeah, I was always always bothered me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I know that we're, we're talking about children here and, and youth, but you were scoring like 100 goals a year playing your, your school team. You had a villa court. Then you get training with uh, Charlton as well. This is a lot of commitment and a lot of involvement at such an early age. Yeah, yeah. I mean, looking back on it, obviously it was, but at the time it didn't feel like any sort of commitment or it didn't seem like any pull on my time or anything it was I was just felt like I was living my sort of dream really I just every chance I, I got I wanted to play football and then I was lucky enough that I happened to be quite good it felt you know it just felt I, I think up to probably the age of about 13 every football match I played in I seemed to win every football match I played in I seemed to score a goal my friends were all being successful as well it just everything seemed so good it, it seemed like the perfect life for me at that time uh, you, you actually got into grammar school as well, which was um, which was quite an achievement, wasn't it, at the time? And you then got scouted by West Ham in your second year. Uh, I mean, this was a, a big step up because you'd actually get to, to go to the ground. You could get to go to games. Uh, you'd actually get in the changing rooms and meet players. I mean, 
this must have been a fantastic experience. Oh, yeah, it was wonderful. It really, it really was. As, as someone as obsessed with football as I was, and at the time as well, West Ham were known as kind of the academy of football. They still had that reputation of bringing players through. Um, and obviously, I was such a big football fan, I knew this, and they had a reputation of playing a certain way. So when I used to go and watch the games at um, like Upton Park, as it was then, it was it, the football was fantastic. I remember seeing people like uh, Alan Devonshire and Liam Brady, Tony Cotty, you know, some great names at the that time. That's a great team. Frank McAvenny. Yeah, Frank McAvenny. Yes, yes. <laughs> when he when he could come back in time from his nights out. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with Charlie Nicholas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The first taste of, of rejection. I mean, at 13, 14, 15, you, you never think that you're not going to make it. How did it feel when it didn't work out at West Ham? Um, I, I can remember it being incredibly hard. I think I found it particularly hard. I, I was quite a, a shy boy. I'm still, even as an adult, I, I can be a little bit introverted at times, kind of thing, if I meet new people. So I was quite a shy boy, and football was kind of what brought me out of my shell made me feel, you know, a sense of feeling like I was somebody and I, and I was some kind of important in a way. So when that first rejection came, I found it so, I found it so difficult just because all my friends were through football and they were all very successful through football. And all of a sudden I felt like, like kind of the odd one out and I felt awkward in conversations. And yeah, the, the difference it made to me as a person was huge, absolutely mm. huge. So you go back at uh, back to St George's, didn't you? And I was again looking at your your goals total: uh, one hundred and sixty-two goals in in ninety-six games. And you end up. I mean, you obviously dealt with the rejection quite well because you've you've then got clubs queuing up: Liverpool, Spurs, Southampton, Palace, Charlton, Millwall, uh, and there was Arsenal in there as well. So how did you end up at Tottenham? Um, it was just. It was, it was a funny thing. It was what, that season was a strange season because I kind of, you hear about, I remember hearing a story about Brian Robson where he had a sort of similar thing where he was very small and then he just blossomed at a certain age. And it kind of happened with me that I just, everything came together. And then all of a sudden I was this person who was obviously, looked like I was a very good player, but I, I wasn't with anybody. So I, I was quite a sort of a hot commodity at the time. Um, so... I decided, having had the re rejection in the past, I'd kind of decided I was just going to kind of play the field a little bit and just go and train with this team, play for that team and just enjoy playing and not put myself under pressure. Um, so I went down to Tottenham and I literally, it just felt like the perfect match for me. From the minute I, I sort of joined, the way they reacted to me, what I saw around me at the time in terms of the football they played, the players who were there, the setup of the club, um, the way, like I say, the coaches from second one seemed to kind of get me as a footballer. So I just felt completely comfortable. I think from, from the minute I, I walked in the door, it, it was just kind of, for me, there was no other club in it. Yeah, so you said basically you realised the big error of your ways and almost <laughs> wasted years following Arsenal and, and everything else. And you, you cast them aside. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't put it quite like that, that was but it, was, it wasn't far off, probably. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, it's, it's kind of a thing as well. I, you know, you get to an age where like, I just supported Arsenal because I grew up with all my friends supported Arsenal, but I didn't really have any views on football. And then as I got to that age, this was at the time when Arsenal weren't playing very attractive football. They were kind of, you know, like the boring, boring Arsenal reputation. Yeah, yeah. One yeah. nil to the Arsenal, all that kind of thing. And at the same <laughs> time, I was kind of 
get in football for what I loved from football, and I loved the flair players and the attacking football. And at the time, again, Tottenham had you know Chris Waddle, Glenn Hoddle had just only just gone, uh, Gascoigne was coming through, and some of the football they played was breathtaking. Yeah, because David Pleat had gone, Benables was in the youth team back then, was one of the best in the country. And if you mention, I think you mentioned in the book, the Spurs players at Lillyshaw, the likes of Sol Campbell, Nicky Barmby, uh, Jamie Redknapp, Vinnie Samways, all of them going on to have uh, great careers. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think when I, when I joined there, I believe it was something like they'd won the South East Counties League for the, the previous five years, which was pretty yeah. much unheard mm. of. Um, and they'd had good cup runs. And as, as a club, they were bringing players through as well. There's quite a lot of players who was in the first team squad who come through the youth team. And there was a certain kind of a player that, you know, you, you kind of had the feel of what a Tottenham player was really. At training, there was a lot of players with a lot of talent. They could, you know, manipulate a ball, good passes, very te- technically very strong so it, it was a you know a pleasure to be around some of those players. Yeah, I always wondered why Darren Caskey never never made it because the times that I saw him back then when he used to go to go to games as a, as a fan, he always looked as if he had that uh, potential. I know Spurs had had you know Glenn Hoddle and people say, well, where's the next Glenn Hoddle? And you had Mickey Hazard and and you know to a degree gary brook came behind uh, mickey hazard but then you saw you know uh vinnie samways and he had potential there scott houghton there why didn't it happen for caskey yeah it's a difficult one i think it was partly because there were so many players of that you know like i've said they had a certain time yeah. at tottenham and there was a lot of players there was a lad there called danny hill who i, I always thought was going to go on to great things but he never quite came through there was Jeffrey Minton was another they were all very similar kind of players they could get the ball down and pass it good vision but then you look at the, the first team players there's people like John Moncur who went on to have an unbelievable career but I think he was at Tottenham for about 10 years and only played about 10 games in all that time your relationship with Pat Holland the ex-West Ham yeah. guy who uh, dished out your first rollicking as well, didn't he, on that uh, trip to France in that tournament with uh, Ajax and Barcelona when you missed a penalty. Um, uh, that was an interesting relationship. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was an incredible relationship. When I look back on it as, as an adult and as someone who's done a bit of coaching and as a teacher as well kind of thing, I look, I look back on it and when I first joined, he was a driving force for me. I, you know, I could tell that he, he liked me as a player. I used to get a lot of things like training had finished and he'd call me over for a little private talk and say, oh, you need to add this to the game or I saw today you were doing that. And he kind of took a real one-to-one interest in me, was forever giving me extra advice and giving me lots of support. And he definitely helped to develop me probably between the ages of sort of 16, 18. He, him as much as anybody helped to sort of mould me as a player. But he was also like an old school sort of coach. He'd come through, uh, you know, hard the times when apprentices were sort of the lowest of the low and you did all the jobs around the ground and you sort of paid your dues and the first team looked down on you a little bit and the coaches were really, really tough and would, you know, ball you out for the, for the slightest thing and shout and scream at you if things were a mistake. And he had that side to him. I used to, I can remember, we used to, we used to play training and he'd join in and he was still a very good player. But if you were on his team, it was it was horrific because if you gave it away, he'd be <laughs> screaming at you and shouting at you. And, and you know, we were 16, 17, and he's like a seasoned professional I'd seen on the TV. 
and he's shouting and screaming at you. So the next time you get the ball, you're like, oh my God, I don't know, if I, I don't know, you know what's going to happen now. If I give it away now, what's he going to do kind of thing? And so as much as I can see how, like, you know, that's probably not the right approach, but it, it did, I also kind of get the other side of it that, it did make you stronger. It was one of those sort of sink or swim, you know, you kind of, you either went, yeah. right, well, I'm going to show you and you, you know, I'll, I'll still demand the ball and I'll still want to get on the ball or, which did happen with, with quite a few players, you kind of go, well, I'll just, I don't want it, I don't fancy this as well, this isn't, you know, I'll, I'll go the other side of the pitch to where he is, I'll try and get on the other teams to him, I'll try and just play it off to somebody else rather than take a risk myself. So I can kind of see both sides, you know, that the old school one probably meant you've got some very tough players who came through and mentally strong, but then, you know, you can't help but look back now and think, well, what damage did it do to the other ones, to the other you know, people there? Great players arriving at that time. Gary Lineker, when he arrived, uh, yeah. 32 years of age, uh, still one of the best around a goal scorer without comparison uh, 80 goals in 138 games uh, at that age in a highly competitive league absolutely incredible and, and I know his arrival had an effect on you as well and you learned great deals of that but he didn't like he didn't like the cross country did he <laughs> no no <laughs> he he was the most single-minded footballer that you're ever going to see because he was just obsessed with scoring goals. So everything he did was obsessed with scoring goals. And you could just tell that if he thought it wasn't going to help you score a goal, then he wasn't interested. So if we did like running in training, he would just jog around, just blatantly jog around, you know, like barely get, even getting a sweat on. But he was so good that no one could really say anything. And then we used to do this run around a park and in the middle of the park with these bunch of trees and you had to go around like twice or three times and so what he would do is on the first lap he'd stop in the trees then just sort of walk to the other side of the trees and just wait there for everyone to do the next like lap or two and then come running out with everyone on the last like little finale and and all the coaches I'm sure I'm sure they must have known but all the coaches because it's you know it's Gary Lineker and he's scoring 20 plus goals and like you say that goal score record and they were just as he's running in they just go oh brilliant Gary fantastic wow wow what a great example you are and we're all running around just you know absolutely hanging sweat dripping off us (laughs) and we know he's just you know he's just jogged out of the trees so yeah but but, you know, that's why he was what he was, because he was so focused on just scoring goals. So, but it was funny. <laughs> A lot of people will think that uh, the moment that you put your name to paper and you make that signature on the forms, it's the, the life of glamour shall ensue. But £29.50 on a YTS, when all your mates are earning double and treble what you're on, the... The, the, the glamour isn't really there for a good while yet. And there's stories of you here supplementing your income, uh, flogging training kit. This is long before eBay. Can you imagine the time you would have had if eBay had been going? Oh, wow, um, yeah. Buying yeah. merchandise from the shop, a cost and flogging it on. And, uh, yeah, the old chestnut selling your tickets to the touts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean... Yeah, it wasn't, it's not good, obviously, but it it was, it was that thing of, you know, if I went out with my friends, say, on a Saturday or something, and I'd, I'd have spent, I'd have like £10 left in my pocket from the week, 
and they're all t- saying, oh, what's it like? Well, you know, what was Lineker like? What was Gascoigne like? And I'm just thinking, well, I can't even buy a drink tonight, let alone <laughs> you know, anything else. So, so you would just, you, you would have to like supplement your wages a little bit. And it, was, it used to be fun because you just get a kit and it used to be wrapped up in a towel. So everyone would grab a kit. And because everyone was doing the same, the first thing you do is you'd unravel the kit to see if you had any good training kit in there. And if you did, that was it. You'd think, right, at the end of training today, that's going in my bag because I, I just need an extra little bit of money here. I like the uh, I like the one about the guy that used to clean Lineker's boots, snaffling a pair or two here and there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Players finding their boots go missing. <laughs> well, definitely. I think that sort of thing would depend on how, you know, if, if the player was a good tipper or was friendly to you or kind of, then you may maybe you just do a good job and you wouldn't do it but definitely if there was someone who at Christmas didn't give you a decent tip or you know threw the boats threw the boots across the change room at you because they weren't quite as clean as they wanted them to be or weren't where they should be at the right time then yeah people just kind of stored that away and thought right don't worry about that then when I get a chance I'll have a pair of your boots and <laughs> see what I can do with them. Yeah, you mastered the art of polishing mud right into the boot, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I was I was terrible <laughs> at doing the boots. The jobs themselves. Yeah, I was, I was awful. You just I kept trying to just work out ways of doing of getting the jobs done quickly and being able to get out and go on training and watch the watch everyone training and play football. So he, every job I did, I tried to find a way of getting it done as quickly as possible. But obviously, in the end, you get you do get found out. I, I remember. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say that. Yeah, no, no. Carry on, carry on. Yeah, I can remember. Um, my the one of the boots people I cleaned was Paul Moran, who was in the first team, was who was brilliant, really really nice bloke. But he came in once, and in front of all the other YTS players, just tore me to pieces about these boots. And he he did it in a funny way that everyone was laughing. But I remember after that, I started scraping the mud off a little bit more and doing a little bit of a better job afterwards. Uh, working with Terry Venables. Great strengths, man management. Everybody I think has has realised that down the years brings in. Players that maybe others wouldn't have touched, players with maybe difficult characters and personalities to deal with. I mean, obviously Gazza, but uh, Paul Walsh, Pat Vandenhow from Everton, Razor, Ruddock, uh, and just nurtured this uh, this talent. Paul Walsh, I know you say, was a bit unlucky he didn't get the breaks. <laughs> Pat Vandenhow, Mr. Mad. One star, I couldn't, I couldn't believe in here. It, he used to... Uh, file down the metal studs on his boots. Yeah, yeah, he had he had two pairs. So he'd have have a pair that he would put on when the like the referees came into the changing room to check everybody's boots before the game, and he'd have another pair that was hidden away in the kit room that the kit man would then go and get and bring in for him to put on to play in. <laughs> and they were they yeah they were filed down. But before the game as well, he was someone who, you know, we we would try and hang around the changing rooms to see glimpses of the other teams and see what was going on. And he, before the game, would have a look on his face as he walked out. He was so just, yeah. I, if, if you played against him, you'd probably look at him in the first five minutes and think, yeah, not today. I think I'm just going to stay out of his way today. <laughs> <laughs> but Venables impressed you? Yeah, hugely, hugely. I've never seen like anything really quite like him. He was one of those people who, you know, if he walked into a room, all eyes were on him. He had, he had a certain kind of gravitas to him that he, he just had an aura that you know the people looked at him and was was kind of oh okay even you know like the big names at the club you t- you see players now who seem to have no respect for some of their managers and some of the actions they the things they do but everybody had complete respect for him 
and um, his coaching was just second to none, absolutely second to none. The things he would spot and his um, like level of detail was just incredible. He he used to so he'd be coaching the first team, and I w- he would just say little things to me just in passing, and I'd think I can't believe he spotted that. I'm, this is just like I said, training. He'd be so spot on with the things he said, and it makes such a difference to your game. And yet he wasn't really even. I was just there as an extra, you know. He he was concentrating on the first team, but he would sort out problems in my game while doing something else. You won the youth cup that year, beat United in the the, the semis, Borough in the final. Yeah. Um, and then you get the call up for this uh, this England shadow squad, and this is where you can draw the comparisons, isn't it, between Terry Venables and an England setup that at that time was obsessed with Charlie Hughes and his philosophy of most goals are scored by three passes or fewer, so get the bloody ball quicker, uh, quickly forward yeah yeah it was it was almost a shock to me because you kind of heard the stories about England you know that we're behind the times we're behind other countries how we play and everything but you kind of think it's just the press um but I remember going in the first meeting that we had and we sat down and I was used to like say people like Terry Venables, Pat Holland, Ray Clements real real football people um and I was used to how they spoke and the common sense behind what they said. And I can just remember sitting there thinking, I can't believe these are the instructions. It was just, they was basically telling everybody, don't have a touch, get it forward, chase after it, get the second ball, then kick it forward again, chase after it, get the second ball. And they were just stressing the fact that um, if you tried to have a touch and control the ball, then you were going to ruin the whole system. So, you know, I I was coming through the Tottenham team at the time and I remember just sitting there thinking, well, I, I, I don't even know... I don't know what I'm going to do then in the game, really, because my game was all about holding the ball up and playing passes through for people. And I think I'm going to spend all game just chasing the ball into the corner here. <laughs> do you know, is, it, is it any wonder that, that Glenn Hoddle never flourished in in the England team at the ludicrous number of caps that he had? What was it, 54, 55? Yeah. You know, and everybody else used to say, oh, we'd have built our entire team around him and... Yeah, if he was French, he'd have been the equivalent to what Zidane was in the next generation. He'd have been lauded, you know. And there we were talking about lump it forward. It's, yeah. it's funny, actually, just saying that because uh, the game against France, which you didn't play in, because this is where the story turns, isn't it? Because uh, up to that point, you're talking about trials and goals and glamour and meeting the stars and everything else. And then it starts to turn to... And then I got this injury and I got that injury. And yeah. the injury that you picked up, which kept you out of the England game, Zidane was playing for the French. Yeah, he was, yeah. And it, it was quite a good example even there. Our best player in training, we had Jamie Redknapp. And he they, he was sub, but in training he was the best player by a mile. But again, he didn't kind of fit the style. And then I think he was probably watching the game from the sideline thinking, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm not in this team because... The French absolutely annihilated us. And I could remember, I, I, was, I was a sub, but I, with the injury, I was never really a chance of me going on, I don't think. It was just, I was there. They, they were being very nice and just letting me kind of be part of it kind of thing, do a bit of the warm-up. And I was remember sitting there, and there was two players in centre midfield. I don't know who the other one was, but there were these two players. They were six foot plus, and they absolutely bossed the game. Everything went through them. We, there we were, 
hitting the ball in the channels and chasing after it. And these two players were just like floating on air kind of thing. And Zidane in particular, um, every now and then, he'd be doing all that kind of like little short pass and stuff. And then he would just ghost past some players. It's a change of pace. I think we lost 4-1 and I think we were lucky to get the one, to be honest. It, it was, I was just sitting there mesmerised by it and... Um, it was only I kind of looked up the names of that because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Some of the quality of these players, and I can remember seeing a thing a few years later, and apparently Harry Redknapp was in the stand watching the game, and he turned around to someone and kind of said, "There's a player there. That's someone who's going to be something." Uh, Venables told you to aim for the first team squad, didn't he, uh, that year, as opposed to you know just uh, aiming for Ray Clements's uh, reserves. But then you know, it, then comes the, the knee injury. And what I can't believe here, any any injury around the ACL, you know, anything serious like that, you, you're not playing. And there's an option for you to either build the muscle and play on, which you did, and somehow managed to score 15 goals in 20, 20 games. Looking back on that now, if you'd have not played and had that dealt with and sorted out then, would that have had a, a more positive effect, do you think? as opposed to just leaving it I, yeah, for the time being? I think definitely. I think probably my insecurities came into that a little bit because obviously you have a two-year YTS contract. Um, I had no guarantee of a professional contract. Some players had already got sort of, you know, something in writing that they were going to get a definitely professional contract at the end of it. I was happy to just have the YTS. But then what was happening then was they were also telling me that at the time that kind of injury could take up to a year. Well, the injury had happened in pre-season between my first and... well the first injury but when I actually started to really go I'm now into my second year so my my big worry my big concern then was that well what if if I'm not playing then what if they don't then give me a contract and then you know so I was just panicking that I was going to lose this chance of getting the first team contract but again with hindsight I think my first year and the first part of that second year would have been enough I, I genuinely think that that would have been enough for me to still have got the professional contract so I think I, I should have Done, had the operation rather than just kind of because all that happened was I, I'd play a game I'd, be, I'd play quite well and then after the game my knee would blow, balloon up I couldn't play for a couple of weeks I'd lose a little bit of fitness I'd come back um, take a couple of games to get back to how I should be play well knee would flare up again and I just I just my whole season was like that really and it kind of I think it probably affected some people's views of me as well because um, you know when my knee wasn't right I probably wasn't playing at quite at the levels that I could have played as well and people you know they don't make allowances for injuries really I don't think you did get the two-year deal and the first thing that happens is you go straight to hospital yeah <laughs> where yeah, they exactly. did the, uh, the yeah the keyhole surgery repaired your cartilage and you wake up from that uh, that operation and you're lying there and they're telling you yeah well, you know we've sorted that and we've repaired a bit of cartilage oh by the way uh, you may never play football again yeah I mean that must have been a, I mean, a hammer blow. I mean, it must have been some shock. Yeah, it's, it was kind of, it's possibly one of the most devastating things that I've ever had in my whole life. Just that one, that one sentence and the way it was done and the context of everything. So I woke up in the bed from the keyhole. I'm waiting to find out if it's a success or anything. And it was literally just me in the room and the doctor, like the surgeon, and the surgeon was this incredible surgeon. And I absolutely unbelievable. He did, he did lots of the surgeries at that time on the top players. But surgeons, you know, I think they're, they're probably not the most 
people people they they see things as you know like as bodies and black just and you know, limbs yeah. and black and white and he he did he just came in and literally there's me laying in bed by myself and just said gave me the news that I may never kick a ball again and then walked out the room and then it was like the whole room just closed in on me I was just laying there in the bed and just I must I don't, the look on my face I'm just complete shock but again you 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 get out of hospital and you end up getting stuck on an underground train because you can't actually get off it and walk. Yeah, yeah. And and that was partly, that was probably, it was starting to get to the bit there. I think Tottenham were kind of just getting fed up with it a little bit with my in, with the injury and things. And I, it kind of happened that I, I had to go into Tottenham. So I should never have gone in. Um, and they, they said, no, you need to come in. You've had the operation now. We need to have a look at the knee. So, you know, I didn't drive, so I had to go in on the train. I came in, John Sheridan, the physio, who's absolutely brilliant, and he just kind of took one look at my knee and said, well, why are you here? Why have they got you to come in? You, I can't see anything. It's too swollen. You've only just had the operation. You shouldn't even really be on it. And they sent me straight, he sent me straight home. And then on the way home, Monday was just getting bigger and hotter and bigger and hotter <laughs> until I, I got to the point where I was stranded at London Bridge Underground, and they had to like, pretty much airlift me out of it and take me to the hospital. It's, it's just it's just staggering, isn't it? I mean, even yeah. now, uh, the day you came out of hospital, Spurs Spurs Arsenal Cup semi final, Wembley Stadium, the first one, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and the the Gascoigne goal. Of course, if you get to the final, you then get uh, you get your tickets, don't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you put three hundred quid on Arsenal. I, I did, can't believe yeah. you did that. I know. But again, it was that in my head. I was thinking, well, if if I get to the, I can't go to the semi-final, obviously, so I get tickets and there was a couple of the players in the first team who were just buying tickets off anybody who wanted to sell their tickets. So I was thinking, well, I'm going to get money for that and then if we get to the final, I'm going to get the same amount again and I'm still not going to go, be able to go because of my knee. Um, so I just, yeah, I came up with the idea of, you know, I would have been banned. If it happened now, I'd have been banned for it, but I basically um, things like that were unheard of, really, players getting banned for, for bets and things. So... I thought I'd double my double my options, so I, I bet on Arsenal to win, so that whatever happened, I was going to get the money that I thought I was going to get for the tickets. Uh, Spurs were in a bit of trouble, weren't they? Um, I, do, I remember a lot about this. Uh, Nat Solomon in to sort it out. They then do the deal to sell Gascoigne to Lazio. There's the injury. Uh, originally, it was eight and a half million was going to clear the debts. Venables and Sugar getting together, putting the money in. Peter Shreve's coming in as coach. Lot of change, lot of upheaval at the club. But this is the time when your relationship began to shine with Gascoigne, um, as you were both in rehab. Yeah, yeah. He was um, obviously he was the. the it, it was you know this is after the ninety World Cup um, and the season he had to get them to the cup final. He was probably one of the most famous footballers in the country. And I turned up, we, we had to come back early for pre-season, so it was just me, him, and John Sheridan, the physio. Um, and I was nervous. I, you know, you can imagine, I'm still only 18, probably, at that time. Um, and here I am, walking into a room with just me and Paul Gascoigne. Um, and from the minute I walked in, he treated me like I was an equal, an absolute equal. Everything that we did through our rehab, he just treated me and made sure the club treated me as an absolute equal and he took a real interest in in not just himself getting back fit he was very took a real interest in me getting back to my full fitness um 
And I think if if he hadn't been there with me, my rehab would have been a completely different story. But because oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. you you yeah. wouldn't have been drinking so much. Sol with a bit of lime <laughs> in the top and playing so much snooker. <laughs> yeah, my my game wouldn't have been as good. My snooker game <laughs> and Paul game would wouldn't have been anywhere near as good. Definitely, if it wasn't for meeting him. <laughs> There's always a lot of people on hangers on uh, around him and, and stories of friends and so on, even selling uh, stories to tabloids. It, it wasn't easy for him to, to deal with all of that, with all of the constant attention. Yeah, no, I think it was, it was very tough. Him. He, he's, I think the big thing with him is like he's a people person. So he, he trusts everybody. He wants to joke around with everyone. He wants to have fun with everybody. You know, I've ne- I've, in all that time I saw him, I never saw him turn down an autograph with a fan or a picture with a fan or a conversation with a fan. He, it was just that was the kind of person he was. But then I think it started sort of in, enclosing around him a little bit. And there was obviously, in fact, we found out later that his phone was being tapped. But there were there were things like yeah. he he would have sus- suspicions, and the suspicions would be of like people in his family at some points because he'd be think he'd be saying to me, well, the, the you know the newspapers stay in this, and I've only told this person. That's the only person I've spoken to about this, so they can be the only person who could have spoken to the press. And these are people that he kind of practically trusted with his with his life. They were that close to family, so it kind of isolated him a little bit. I think at that time from you know some family members and some close friends because he just didn't really know who he could trust and who he couldn't did you enjoy the day out with the uh, quad bikes and the shotguns oh yeah it's brilliant yeah i mean <laughs> it, it it was kind of surreal the whole time with him was surreal it was kind of i had to pinch myself like is this really me and i had to try and keep myself on a level thing of not getting too carried away with all of this because it was this amazing i'm spending time with paul gascoigne who was like a hero of mine and we're doing all these ridiculously silly things and funny things and crazy things, but I'm still, you know, I, I want to be a footballer still. <laughs> still. You know, that's still the reason I'm here is I want to be a footballer. But it's very difficult to kind of push any of that aside. So you know, say, oh, should we go and do this? And a bit of me thinks, well, I don't know, should we do that? And then I think, oh my god, but I, I so want to do that. <laughs> you know, I so want to spend the day with you on a quad bike and driving around a farm and shooting at scarecrows and things, you know, who wouldn't want to do that with Paul Gascoigne? It's the kind of stuff you, you know. It's like, it sounds like a corporate day out that now, isn't it? <laughs> it does, S- yeah, exactly. D- <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he ended up the worst for weather, didn't he? Because he came off. Well, yeah, yeah. And that was, that, that was like the first of a few sort of scary moments because he didn't really think of... Um, consequences I would say you know he wasn't a consequences sort of person he was a kind of let's dive in and then oh <laughs> now what do I do kind of a person um so on that one in particular we were we were sort of racing for a gate and I was ahead and was going to clearly I was going to be the one going through the gate and rather than him put on the brakes he just kept going so in the end we kind of collided at this at this <laughs> gate and he went absolutely flying over the top of the quad bike the quad bike still moving um, he's kind of landed half in a bush, half on the path. And at first, I, I, I've sort of gone to laugh. And then it's just struck me that, well, hold on, he, you know, this is poor, poor Gascoigne and he's got a, a very serious injury he's just getting over. Um, so now I'm panicking and he's, his knee had a little bit of a, a cut on it. And so, again, it was one of those that we went back in training the next day with John Sheridan and it's just fingers crossed that he hadn't done any more damage. 
that there are stories, and everybody has heard a Gaza story over yeah. the over the years. Everybody has got one to tell. I hadn't heard the one about the paper. Is this real? <laughs> His first pay packet at Newcastle United. He goes to check his balance <laughs> at the bank. Has a look what's in there. Goes off on a spending spree. Comes back to check the balance again. And it appears to have grown every time he goes back. Yep. Is this real? Because he doesn't realise he's basically going overdrawn by more money. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure it's real. Because <laughs> he had quite a lot of these stories where he was kind of almost the victim of the stories. And, you know... Put this way, every, every day I spent with him was a story. You know, like I'd meet up with my friends back where I, I was sort of living at the time, and every day they would say, oh, you know, what was it today? And every day I would have, to them, the most hilarious story that I could tell them. And that was every single day, because every single day he did either something funny or stupid or outrageous. or You know, there, there was never a day where he would, he would just turn up and then go home and you'd think, oh, you know, he didn't do anything today. It just never happened. So the famous yeah. the, the 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 one that went down into into folklore was the one about the England trip going to breakfast in New Zealand when they were on tour with England and saying, uh, "What do you want for breakfast?" Oh, I want a, I want everything. You know, bacon, eggs, bloody bar. You know, I said, "Well, it's just, you know, a bit like we were out of bacon." Oh God, a country with what ten million sheep and you haven't got any bacon. <laughs> What, what was it about? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm sure these have been half, half made up, but what sums up the time and the lengths that people in the media would go to to get stories and exclusives around them was summed up when you went up to, to Newcastle and you ended up going out for the night and the, the paper that had hired somebody to have a go at it in a club and have yeah. a photographer on hand to get an exclusive shot. Yeah, um... I mean, this is this is what I was told, and in terms of fitting the story and the things that happened afterwards, I I 100% believe it's true, and it, it almost makes sense to me. So um, we we turned up at kind of like our final destination, the place where he like he got punched, and we'd been out all day um, and all night basically, and other than you know sort of one or two people taking pictures, there was nobody about. When we got to this place the press were camped outside first of all so they were already there waiting you know so as we left straight after the incident they were already waiting there to get their pictures um and then i was told that exactly as you said that what had happened is and this the person who they'd hired had just come out of prison like a couple of days before and he was supposed to just kind of you know, get in a fight with Paul Gascoigne and start a fight with Paul Gascoigne and then they get their pictures and then they get their story. And obviously with it being really late in the night, they've been exclusive, it's not going to be in another newspaper. But this person who just come out of prison was just went too far and the punch that he threw that knocked down Paul pretty much knocked him out um, and meant that he landed on his, his knee and did the damage that he did. It's an incredible uh, yeah. story. You could have ended up in Italy with him as well, could you not, at Lazio, when Glenn Rhoda pulled out of going with him as a sort of mentor and somebody to just basically look after him. But Spurs wouldn't release you. Yeah, it was, I mean, around about that time, I'd, I'd get the odd phone call off, off of like, sort of Gaza about you know, what we was going to do 
I say at the weekend or something like that. So I'd get the, the occasional phone call, which was always kind of like, oh my God, Paul Gascoigne's ringing me. You know, I'd always have that kind of, oh, he's, he's, my phone's actually, it's Paul Gascoigne ringing me. And he rang me and he was a bit more serious than normal. And he, talk, and he kind of explained that um, from the incident with his knee and with the fact that he'd got into trouble on the night out and everything, and the fact that Glen Road had a, had a family, that Glen Road had kind of thought that he'd, he, could, he didn't need to be surrounded by that with his family, really. And, and Paul was quite understandable about it. He kind of was like, well, that's, you know, that's fair enough. And he, said, and he said to me that he'd spoken to Lazio, and Lazio had either spoken with someone at the club or in some way they knew me, and they'd said that they would be happy to take me on as a player with Lazio as, to go with, with Paul and kind of be half-minder, half-player in Lazio, really. So he floated that out to me. Uh, whether I was I would be interested in it and I was completely split because obviously at the time like, like I said earlier I'm I was a big Tottenham you know, fan at that point and it, it, I felt like I fit them very well and I still had like high hopes of coming back from my knee and continue where I, I left off but at the same time it was an incredible opportunity for me um, and then in the end um, I can't remember if I got a phone call from the club or Paul then rang me again but I could just remember that I was told that basically the club had said no, that they weren't going to let me go as well as part of the deal and that they wanted me still to stay at the club. And in a way, I kind of saw that, you know, as you do, it's like a sort of a silver line a little bit. And I kind of thought, well, that's, that's good because I was, I was still injured at the time. And I kind of thought, well, that means that maybe they have still got plans for me and, you know, maybe I, I still had a future with the club. Uh, Doug Livermore said you were the closest thing he'd seen to Kenny Dalgleish. That's yeah, a bit of a compliment. Oh, it is. That's probably uh, for me particularly. That's I don't think I could get a bigger compliment than that. That was because um, Kenny Dalgleish, when I was a, as a, a kid, was absolutely my favourite player. Absolutely my favourite player. He he played exactly how I wanted to play, um, and he obviously was in that hugely successful side, you know, scored incredibly important goals, you know, European Cup winning goals, league winning goals. So I was absolutely absolute idol of me. And with Doug Livermore, with his close sort of Liverpool tyres, when I, when I heard that, that, yeah, that's probably the biggest compliment I think I've ever had as a footballer. You've had all of this going on, hanging around with Gaza, you know, potential moves to Lazio and, you know, then feeling that every, you know, everything was moving in a forward direction, the club still wanted you. And then they tell you, that's it. We'll let yeah. you go. Yeah, so I came back that first year as a professional. So I also had a two-year contract. I came back with, there was still quite a chunk of the season left. Ray Clements, reserve team manager, was brilliant with me. He brought me back almost immediately into the side. I did quite well for a couple of games. Um, but then I just started getting just injuries, sort of my ankles particularly. I just... It was like, um, they, they'd say it sometimes, you know, if you have a serious injury, that what happens is it's not the serious injury that does you, it's you overcompensate and you end up damaging other parts of your body kind of thing, you know. So yeah, you might walk yeah. with a stiff leg, which means that you put pressure on your ankle, or you might walk slightly stooped over, which means you put pressure on your back. And in my case, it was my ankles. And I was getting to the point where I'd be going on my way to training and I, I'd sort of just turn my ankle walking on a flat piece of ground. Um so I was, I was having a, a bit of a time with that where I'd, I'd play a few games and then I'd be out injured and then I'd have to be back in training trying to prove myself. And then what sort of gradually happened was um, it would take longer and longer for me to get back into the team after a little bit of an injury. And I think they were starting to lose a little bit of 
trust that I was ever going to get back to where I was physically. And then when I came back for pre-season, the next season, I had quite a good pre-season. But then again, um, I turned my ankle in one of the last pre-season games, if I remember right. And basically, they, I got called in and I, I was told that um, I was going to get a free transfer at the end of the season. So I then had a whole season of just kind of turning up training, basically, and just waiting to see what's going to happen. There wasn't a silver lining here. I mean, Charleston came in for you, then they wanted a fee, so that never happened. There was a bizarre trial with uh, Stoke City. And then you end up at Dagenham at Redbridge and Billericay. And you then get that call-up from Ted Buxton, didn't you, at Tottenham out of the blue and saying, do you want to go to New Zealand? I mean, <laughs> out of the blue, really. What, what, what made you take that and say, right, yeah, yeah, I'll go. New Zealand is the future. Yeah, well, I there's think, no uh, history there of New Zealand playing football. I mean, football in New Zealand is like, you know, <laughs> yeah, some right. considerable way behind rugby. Yeah, well, the, the top, well, a long way behind rugby. Yeah, rugby was on TV 24 hours a day. Football was never on. They just, it, it wasn't like a thing. <laughs> Every time you turned the telly on, it would be a bit of rugby. Um, I, there had been a couple of successes, I would say, first of all. I think... Um, I can't remember the names, but there was a couple of players who'd gone. One came back and actually got in the West Ham team, having played out there for a little while. Um, so there was a couple of sort of half successes that I'd heard of. But if I'm, if I'm completely honest, I think it was almost me just trying to get away from what was going on with my career in England at the time. I, I was having the injuries. I was playing sort of... Um, I just started playing non-league football. I wasn't really enjoying it. I, I wasn't playing quite at the level I wanted to play. I was a bit you know, disheartened with the whole Tottenham thing. And I think when the offer came, there was a big part of it for me. It was just almost like just running away from my problems and like, right, yeah, great. No one knows me there. I'll go there. Maybe I'll play some football. I'll get myself back fit. And then, you know, let's see where it takes me. But I, I don't think it wasn't a calculated move. It wasn't really me, you know, thinking it through. It, I think a big a big bit big attraction was just right just get me out of here i just need a break i need to get away from what's what's happened to me really uh quite a party culture over there they like to drink uh, didn't they i mean was this <laughs> was this true the training was stopped one day because they realized there was no beer in the uh, the clubhouse and it didn't restart until they were sure that they'd had a keg delivered yeah, 100% true, 100% true. It was even the, the, um, the captain, who was a big New Zealand lad, he actually went into the bar to see it before coming out and saying, it's all right, boys, they've got one in there, and then we carried on training. That was literally, it's not even like me exaggerating, it was it literally having a meet, and Greg Howell had gone out there with me. We were just rolling about laughing, literally rolling about laughing. We started, we were looking at each other like, is this for real? You know, we thought people were joking and then it actually stopped and we were just, we just couldn't stop laughing. I had tears rolling down my eyes at some points, but looking around, we were the only ones laughing. <laughs> you know, we, we thought it was the funniest thing in the world, but everyone else was deadly serious. Everyone else was kind of, well, you know, you might be laughing, but we're not starting until this turns up. It was, yeah. Yeah, it probably summed it up what? quite well. <laughs> that, um, the, book, the, the book was going on and then I, you turn the page and you just get to the point where it just says, and then that was it. My football dream ended, age 23. I enrolled to be a teacher, end of story. 
you kind of wonder if you think now, if you were in the same position today with the way in which clubs and academies are run, do you think the outcomes for you would have been different? Um, I, th- I think so, yes. I, probably, I, I think even down to um, there's more access to information than there was at that time. So I don't think there's any coincidence that a lot of um, children of footballers end up being footballers because they have an, the ear of somebody or the, you know, they, they get to hear from someone every day who's been there and done it and knows it. Um, so they have more information than anyone else. They know what it takes. They know what's needed. And I didn't have a clue. I re- when I'm writing this book, when I was writing it, it really brought it home to me that I was absolutely blind in the whole thing because I didn't really know what to do probably 90% of the time. I was just doing whatever I could at the best I could possibly do. But I didn't really have a lot of knowledge to go with. And I think now... I would probably be able to find out more about other people who are in the same situation, maybe. You know, like my, my book, for example, I would hope would could do that for somebody else even. You know, just be able to sort of go, oh, well, actually, there is a way back in. This person's done this. Oh, yeah, you can do that. That's another thing I can do. I can train this. There's an operation I can have that does this. But at the time, you know, the, the internet was was there, but it wasn't as comprehensive as it is now. You couldn't really find things out. So it was just word of mouth. And if you weren't really on the inside of these things, you were just left flailing. You were just left kind of hoping that you was going to get to where you needed to get. So, yeah, I do think if it was now, I, I probably would, would have maybe stuck at it a bit longer. I'd have probably gone around things a little bit differently. You know, but hindsight, obviously, is a wonderful thing. That was Anthony Potts talking about his life and his career and that new book called Losing My Spurs, published by Pitch Publishing, is available now by all the usual outlets. And that is it for this month. Don't forget, we've got 33 editions of this podcast. So if you've missed any, you can catch up with them via the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of the major streaming providers. And that is it for this month. Uh, Talking Sports Media will be back in a few weeks' time in April. Until then, thanks for joining us. From me, Tim Cable. Bye-bye for now.